Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Intersections Matchmaking's Talk Radio, a monthly holistic lifestyle show focused on the continual evolution into the best versions of our authentic selves. We and our special guests will discuss relationships, social dynamics, and health and wellness, each of which contributes to meaningful and fulfilling lives. This is Jasmina, your host. I'm a former practicing lawyer and the founder of Intersections Matchmaking, the only elite, national, personalized matchmaking company focused on singles of South Asian descent nationwide in the U.S. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Moss to our show tonight. Dr. Moss, who holds a Ph.D. in psychology, has authored a number of books, the most recent of which is, For Better or For Worse, Am I in Love with a Giver or a Taker? I recently learned that more couples decide to get divorced in January than any other month of the year. According to Dr. Moss, once patterns and behavior are recognized, relationships and marriages can be saved. By identifying whether your significant other is a giver or a taker, Dr. Moss provides information on effective ways to deal with each type of personality. Welcome, Dr. Moss. Happy to have you on the show. As a professional matchmaker and dating coach, I'm fascinated by insights and perspectives regarding relationships. I've enjoyed reading For Better or For Worse, Am I in Love with a Giver or a Taker? And would love to explore some of the insights shared in your book with our listeners. So Dr. Moss, one foundational insight you share is that it is possible to explain everyone's behavior with two simple and basic rules. I'd love to share the two rules with our listeners and have you expand on each, uh, perhaps with some examples. Okay. So the first simple and basic rule you share, which you state makes it possible to understand human behavior, is that everyone tries to control the world in a way that helps him or her to experience positive feelings and avoid negative feelings. It would be great if you would explain and perhaps clarify this rule with examples, Dr. Moss. 
Oh, I'm glad to do that. Uh, yes, basically what uh, we're talking about when I make that statement is that everyone does want to experience positive and no one wants negative emotions. And basically to understand it, uh, it's important to recognize that you actually have two separate minds, some people call it conscious-unconscious, but basically we're referring to one side of the brain here that controls emotional functioning. And so basically what determines what feels positive to us is going to be based upon the memories that we form around positive experiences or what's negative is negative experiences. And so basically we all then are a product of our own past, and the things we continue to do basically to turn on positive and negative or turn off negative emotions is trying to more or less control relationships or the things around us in our world that can activate those positive memories or turn off the negative memories. Okay. Now, the second simple and basic rule you share, which you say makes it possible, again, to understand human behavior, is that over time and all other things being equal, nothing remains as positive as it once was. Once again, it would be great if you'd explain and you know, perhaps clarify this rule with examples as well. Okay, well, basically this is referring to something my mama used to tell me when I was a kid, and that is when I got a new toy, the newness wears off. And okay. this is going to be true in terms of all our experiences. And so basically it's just simply saying is, is that no matter how positive something is, whether some material thing, relationship, or whatever, the initial ecstasy that is present is going to start to wear off or actually turn more toward neutral. I don't want to get too detailed unless you want me to in terms of the causes of that, but the bottom line is is that in the initial parts of a relationship, falling in love, it's just wonderful. Things continue uh-huh. along, but over a period of months, in some cases years, you're going to find that it becomes more neutral, basically not necessarily negative, but it can go more toward contentment as opposed to the initial ecstasy of falling in love. Okay, great. Now, another foundational concept, which I think you touched upon, that you share in your book is that of one brain and two minds, and the resulting inevitability of what you term a a think-slash-feel conflict. Can you explain this concept to our listeners, and, you know, perhaps, again, if there are any examples you want to use? Well, yeah, I'd love to do that. Well, basically, the the left side of the brain controls the, the, the verbal thinking, talking to ourselves. If I was brought up in the U.S., then my native uh, spoken language is going to be English, and mm-hmm. I'll actually talk to myself in my head. That's what we kind of think of as thinking when I'm talking to myself in my head, but it's actually on the left side of the brain only. That's okay. going to control, then, the verbal thinking aspects or talking. The other side, the right side, as I've already mentioned, is going to control many functions, one of which is emotional processing. And so, therefore, what we're going to find is is the things that we're going to develop, if you will, a native emotional language, just like we have a native spoken language, based upon our history, the things that turn on positive and negative for us in relationships. And then, basically, this is what we'll be talking about this evening, you know, the things that activate the positive, turn off the negative, actually result in certain patterns of behavior emotionally. Oh, okay. And um, you know, now that now, Dr. Musser, we've discussed some of these foundational concepts. Can you share with our listeners what you mean by uh, by takers? And I understand, and I, I'd love you to expound on this. I understand that you know it's coming from a very judgment-free zone in terms of there's no um, value judgment value attached to givers versus takers, but it's it's more a paradigm to explain behavior. But let me let you take it away and share what you mean by the term takers. 
Sure. Uh, now, a lot of people, and I, I've actually done web searches on this kind of internet searches, and I find a lot of people use these terms giver and taker, and typically, uh-huh. as you've already mentioned, it's usually associated with one being good, one being bad. The reality, what we're talking about here is these basic patterns that we develop, uh, we, we don't have a choice in, this, in these things, and we continue then to maintain these patterns. Well, takers activate positive feelings by taking power, control, attention, or things in relationships. And that's what activates the positive. And for these individuals, if they have to give something, it actually activates negative emotions. That's the reason for a taker, if they're going to do something for you, you know they're going to be looking for something in return. If they're going to tolerate the negative emotions, they're going to get some positive in, in response to that. Okay, now you identified 10 general behavior patterns of takers. And, you know, I think to give our listeners a a flavor, why don't I read each one aloud, each one of those general behavior patterns aloud for the benefit of our listeners. And then after I read each one, one by one, I'd love to give you the opportunity to expand and uh, Now, the first pattern you mentioned is that of takers seem nicest in the beginning. Tell us about that. Right. Well, takers, when you first meet them, these are the individuals that can come across very effectively, uh, in some cases, almost too good to be true. Uh, If they want a relationship with you, they're willing to actually do whatever they have to do to actually develop that relationship. And so basically, they're willing to give a great deal on the front end of a relationship with the idea being that if they get you to have the relationship with you, uh, then they will have gotten the payoff for having to give. In other words, if they give a lot, even though it turns on negative emotions initially, to get the relationship itself. Okay. Now, the second pattern that you mentioned is that takers need to be in control. Tell us about that. Well, for takers, if they can take power and control in relationships, then that's what's going to activate the positive feelings for them. And they can do it in direct fashion or indirect fashion many times. But what you will have found is is that during that first, if you're, say, in a marriage with a taker, you would okay. have seen a pretty dramatic change from before you were married to that first year of marriage. In that first year of marriage, you're going to note that it's almost as if they're trying to control your life in terms of your relationships with others as well as the things that you do. Okay. Now, the third, um, the third pattern you mentioned is that of takers sometimes use anger to control others. Tell us about that. Well, basically, you will find, I guess the easiest way to put this is, if you kind of go back to that second rule about being in control, if they can get something by being nice, and they can get the same thing by being nasty or angry, you're going Mm -hmm. to find that over time they get angrier or nastier in their interactions because they feel more power and control having gotten it from expressing the anger. And so the more you give in to a taker like this, the more likely you are to see that anger coming forth. Okay, so giving in, it's almost uh, cyclical. You give in more, and then, you know, more more anger may come out. Well, and now, yeah, exactly. And see, think about it this way is if they can, as I say, the whole thing is to get the most feelings of power and control in the relationship. Okay. Well, it's almost as if they can get it by being angry or nasty to you then basically you're going to see them getting more angry and nasty, push the limits further and further in that negative direction as they're, if you were pulling from you the things they're looking for. Okay. Now, um, your, the fourth pattern you mentioned, our takers often are inconsistent. Tell us about that. 
Well, if you will, rules that we develop in relationships tend to level the playing field. And okay. so if indeed you start dealing with a taker, they're actually going to be quite inconsistent. What was right last week may not be right this week. Uh, it's going to be very hard to define any kind of consistent patterns or rules you can use with them to actually get the behavior you're looking for. And so in essence here, they tend to be very inconsistent because it gives them more power and control over time. Uh, again, that's the reason that when you start doing any kind of treatment or marital therapy, say, for example, when a taker's involved, it's mm -hmm. very difficult to get them to actually, over the long haul, to follow the, the rules or the skills that you're trying to teach them. And so, again, uh, it's a way that they can, ex if you will, get more power and control in the relationships by this inconsistency. Okay. And then rule number, um, the rule number five or the pattern number five that you mentioned is that takers must win arguments. Tell us about that. Yes. If you get into an argument with a taker, this is where you're going to see some real telltale signs and you really start to recognize the patterns. The okay. only rule they're playing by is I win, I get my way. And so, in essence, they're willing to say or do whatever they have to say or do during the course of that disagreement or argument to basically get you to give in to what they're looking for. Uh, if you try to use logic and reasoning with them, they'll disregard logic and reasoning and hit you something out of left field that makes no sense. So, in essence here, as it goes along, but the longer you talk to a taker, the greater the likelihood they're going to win because they're willing to say or do whatever they have to say or do to come out on top at the end of the argument. Okay. Now, the, the sixth uh, pattern that you mentioned with respect to takers is that takers sometimes condemn others. Tell us about that. Well, takers, by, by their nature, they're always going to feel like others have things they don't, and they're also going to basically put others down to actually make themselves feel better. If they can find fault with others or uh, if you will gossip or whatever it may be, and you will find is is that that actually activates the positive feelings for them. Uh, so again, this is the kind of pattern that you start seeing develop is is they will more or less put others down, and then if you're in a one-to-one -one relationship with them, you will find them kind of sniping at you. Uh, they will find fault with just about everything that or many things that you do. Uh, it's almost as if you feel like you can never measure up and do enough, and somehow you can never actually achieve success in terms of them kind of acknowledging the fact that you've done a good job. Okay. And then the seventh um, general pattern you mentioned, and this um, this actually, uh, well, let me say, takers believe that they are right. I was going to say, given the fifth pattern of takers must win arguments, I can see how these two might work together. But uh, the rule number seven, again, takers believe that they are right. So um, tell us about well, that. Yeah, again, you're exactly right. All these things do intertwine with one another as you're starting to look at general behavior patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, but takers basically, they're going to come across almost with black and white thinking, and whichever way they are is the way you're supposed to be. Uh, if they tend to exercise, they think everybody else ought to exercise too, and they put people down for not doing enough of that. If they don't do it, then they're going to actually make fun of people who do. Uh, so, again, they, they, they kind of approach things or at least voice that they always kind of know what's right and what's wrong, uh, even though if you look at their behavior, they don't actually follow through with those same patterns. This is more what they say as opposed to what they do. Ah, uh, the inconsistency that you had mentioned earlier. Exactly. And then in terms of the black and white that you just mentioned, um, this the eighth pattern you mentioned is takers are prone to extremes. 
Exactly. They, they, they basically, if they find a little bit of something makes them feel good, a whole bunch ought to make them feel great. So if they're going to go to extremes, whether it be exercise, whether it be if they have religion, they tend to basically be very condemning of others who don't follow the same religion. Uh, it could be things, uh, if you will, such as, uh, well, well, I guess just about anything you can think of, whether it's making money. Uh, again, they, they tend to go to these extremes in terms of whatever they think, once again, going back to what they say is right. Now, if they basically are going after it, they also change over time. Many times those exercise people that basically you know, go into the extremes there, later in their life they may actually completely change. If they were strongly involved in religion, uh, basically if they ever give it up or they don't do it, they can't continue to get more out of others using that, many times they may turn their back on it and consider everybody hypocrite. Again, they, they tend to go to the extremes all the way or none at all kind of thing. Uh, it's very uh, similar to drugs and alcohol as well. Swinging the pendulum one way or the other, but not really, okay. Interesting. And the rule, um, the general pattern number nine that you mentioned, is takers want to be the center of attention. Tell us about that. Well, again, it goes back to the simple fact is that takers want to be noticed by everybody. Uh, this is the kind of individual that if they can actually take credit for things they have not done, it's going to create a great deal of positive feelings for them. It's almost look what I'm getting away with kind of feeling. Uh, it's the individual many times that, uh, that they're basically they're going to be the life of a party. If everybody else is quiet, they're going to be loud. However, if everybody else is very loud, they tend to get quiet or sullen. Uh, they're actually going to stand out in some way. And so, again, they're going to continuously bring attention back toward themselves uh, and make a big to-do of everything that they can. Okay. Now, the final um, general pattern that you mentioned with respect to takers is that takers often portray themselves as victims. Tell right. us about that. As well. Yeah. well, again, uh, they, they're very good at playing the martyr-victim role in many cases. Uh, if you look at behaviorally what they do, many times they're going to have, a, if you will, get a lot more than others around them, including spouse or fiancé or whomever it may be. Uh, but in essence here, they can come across as if they're the ones who have done everything, nobody appreciates them. Uh, they almost make you feel guilty if, if you basically are, are, are not complying with all their wishes all the time. Uh, they many times will make statements such as, all I'll do is give and give, and no, I don't get anything in return. Uh, and the reality is, if you look at their behavior, it's just the opposite. Uh, they take and take and give very little. Uh, but they will be the ones, if there's any kind of difficulty in life, that will come across as if they are the martyr, the victim, and they're going to basically get everything possible they can from whatever it may be that's going on. Once again, going back to the attention and the power and the control they get from acting out that role. All right. Now, in your chapter on intimate relationships with takers, Dr. Moss, you share some interesting suggestions regarding setting limits and negotiating fairly. So can you expand on these? Sure. Basically, when you start looking at taker behavior, as I've already mentioned, mm -hmm. if you give in to them when they're being nasty, they're just going to get nastier over time. So one of the things that we talk about doing is establishing boundaries and limits such that if you get into a disagreement with a taker, you basically don't give in to them ever when they're being nasty to you. Uh, and then basically once they've been nasty, the second thing we'll typically see them do is to get cold. Okay. Okay, and so basically 
you give into them being cold, once mm-hmm. again, uh, you're going to find that ignoring you, but then you're kind of reinforcing the being cold part. The key is don't give into them when they're being nasty or being cold. Okay. Only give in to a taker when they're being nice, but only give in if you think it's reasonable to give in on the point. Uh, so, again, the idea is, <coughs> excuse me, you just want to reinforce the idea that you have to be nice to me to get anything from me. <clears throat> okay. Now, I found a quote from one from your book particularly compelling, um, and I'd love to share the quote with our listeners and then ask you to expand. You wrote that takers fundamentally cannot change. They will always be takers. People involved in relationships with takers must accept them or reject them. If they accept them, they need not necessarily condone or accept all of their behavior. And then you later continue, the most important thing that we must change is ourselves. We must learn to accept the taker as she, he or she really is to do the things that help he or she to be um, their best self in our presence and realistically assess whether the relationship is satisfactory. To expand further, Dr. Moss. Sure. This is one of the key aspects of what we are actually talking about. We're, we're coming from an angle of saying that based upon the way the, uh, we're all, as individuals put together, we're all very self-serving, trying to activate positive, turn off negative feelings. And we cannot help the way that we develop those patterns is based upon our childhood up through adolescent years into our adult years. And so if I'm dealing with a taker, it's not them choosing to be a taker. The only way they can actually turn on positive feelings is by taking. Uh, kind of think about it this way. If, if I give to you and it turns on negative feelings, how long do you really expect me to continue to give? If I can turn on positive feelings only by taking, of course that's the behavior pattern I'm going to do. So it comes down to the fact, uh, if you will, just beginning to accept the reality of the situation, that this is all the person is capable of doing. Uh, An example in my case here is kind of like, for example, I've never had a great singing voice. Well, no matter how many lessons you give me in singing, that I'm never going to be good at doing it. So it's just simply saying is I don't have the ability to do this. Well, it's important if you basically in a relationship with me, if that was a key thing that you're really looking for, and basically you have to accept the fact you're never going to have this wonderful voice coming from me. Well, if I'm in a relationship with a taker, it's recognizing they're not holding back. They're only doing what they're capable of doing. And so basically then if I want to get the improved behaviors, I have to do it not by changing the person, but basically by changing my behaviors in reaction to that person. Like I've already mentioned, I'm not going to give in to when they're being nasty to me or being cold to me. Uh, It's basically I'm changing my behavior pattern because I recognize the only way they can actually put forth that being nice part is because Mm -hmm. I'm drawing the limits and demanding that of them. Does that kind of make some sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And so, again, it goes back to the fact is, is that it's important to recognize people can only do what they're capable of doing and so our goal becomes one of recognizing what is it they're truly capable of doing or not doing. Okay. That makes a lot of sense, and it really um, gives context to the whole. It, it puts flesh on the bones of, of what we're talking about. So that's very right. um, very helpful, very interesting. And um, now that we've discussed takers, Dr. Moss, I'd like to switch gears and ask you to share with our listeners what you mean by givers. Well, a very similar kind of thing is is that givers are the individuals that the way they act, they positive feelings for themselves in relationships, 
is by mm-hmm. the giving of power, control, attention, or things. Uh, an example would be for a giver, the most positive thing is if I decide to do something for you, I think I did a good job on it and you appreciate me. And so that would be the major positive thing. Givers, on the other hand, have a hard time in accepting from others. It's almost as if you do something for me, it turns on a little negative. I almost feel guilty accepting it. So it's kind of like uh, if you do something for me, I feel like I need to do something in return for you. I so need they, to reciprocate they, uh, right away almost. Oh, exactly right. If you, if you gave me a cake, I have to give you two pies. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay, okay. Okay. Now, you know, um, similarly to um, as you had done with takers, you identified ten general behavior patterns of givers as well. And again, um, I thought it was very helpful before, so why don't we do the same thing where I read aloud okay. um, each of those general behavior patterns um, for the benefit of our listeners. And then after I read each one, you know, again, I'd love you to give to give you the opportunity to expand. Now, the first pattern um, of givers is givers seem likable but reserved. Tell us about that. Well, uh, givers are the individuals that they're going to, you know, come across pretty consistently in a relationship. So when you first meet them, they actually are going to come across pretty well that way throughout a relationship. This is not the individual most of the time that if they want to meet you, they're going to jump over three tables to introduce themselves. Uh, they're not going to stand out or be show-offish. So basically they come across more reserved in the in the very beginning. Uh, again, what this whole pattern is, is that you know what you see is what you get. All right. Now the second um, pattern pertaining to givers is, is that givers want to feel like the good guy. Tell us about that. Right. Well, basically, all givers, that is the primary rule is I want to be seen by other individuals as being a good person. And that can mean one of two things. Now, givers, their default rule, if you will, is they want to please others most of the time. Uh, that's that's kind of, you know, if I'm pleasing others and people like me, then I'm, I feel like I'm being the good guy. Uh, as we all know, over time in reality, we can never do that. Uh, with every person that we meet, you can't please everybody all the time. So mm-hmm. many times they will develop rules then to define what being the good guy means. And so if they can follow those rules to define being the good guy, then if they do displease somebody, at least they're not going to have the same negative emotions tied to the disapproval because they know they're following these fair rules, if you will, up to, as they define being this good person. Okay, so it seems like you... Um you know, in explaining that that second behavior pattern, you also um, alluded to that third general behavior pattern of givers, that being that givers try to gain approval by doing nice things. And similarly, it seems like you you also had alluded to the fourth general pattern that you had mentioned, that being givers establish rules and follow them. So let's let's jump to the fifth general um, you know general pattern which pertains to givers, and that is a givers fight. Only when there is no alternative. Let's tell me more about that. Right, uh, givers, by their nature, they do not like conflict. Uh, and I'll kind of contrast the takers who many times create conflict. Givers, on the other hand, try to not engage in it. They try to avoid or whatever. And so, basically, whenever they can, uh, again going back to their consistency with their rules, is that basically, you know, I don't, I don't really want to have any kind of conflict and I'm going to try to avoid it, the only way you're actually going to see them kind of lose it is if you push them into a corner and they can't get out of it. 
an example would be, let's say, if I have a giver who drinks too much, uh, then basically if I bring to their attention, hey, look, you really need to do something about this, at first they'll kind of play it off, but if you keep you know, badgering them, they'll finally kind of just blow up long enough just to make you back away. But if you back off them, then they're not going to continue to attack. They're going to pull back in, as we'll talk about in a moment, into their kind of mm-hmm. shell. And, and so mm-hmm. in essence here, they, they don't have anything that to say it's okay to have conflict, and they will do whatever they can to try to avoid that. All right, and, and um, as you as you gave us the uh, the preview of that for that the sixth pattern, the givers have a thick inner shell. The thick inner shell we refer to, and sometimes it's just easier as we're uh, describing these patterns. I, this is something obviously I do in treatment frequently, mm-hmm. but in mm-hmm. essence, here you you want to evoke an image in a person's mind, and when you're starting to evoke that image, you're actually addressing. Uh, the emotional side of the brain that controls the emotions. And that thick inner shell just kind of gives you a picture in your mind to kind of per- imagine this giver type pulling back into this shell, and you can't penetrate it. The more you try to penetrate it, the more they're going to avoid. Uh, they're going to try to escape situations, particularly those in which they feel like there's unwinnable situations, they can't solve the problem, or if there's conflict, they're going to pull into this shell and just try to avoid that any way they can. So the primary way they deal in relationships if things get kind of heated is to escape or to avoid. And that's what we're talking about, pulling that inner shell. All right. Um, And somewhat related to that seems that's uh, the seventh pattern, which is that givers suppress their emotions. Well, basically, givers, by their general nature, they're not going to wear their emotions on their sleeves. You're not going to necessarily know. does not mean that they don't have the emotions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many givers are well aware of the emotions they have, but they don't necessarily express them freely. You're never going to necessarily see them. And so basically, particularly if it's negative emotions, that of frustration, anger, these kinds of things, they're going to have a tendency to kind of just bottle it up and just to kind of push ahead and to do these kinds of things. Uh, so in essence here, then, when we're saying suppress, it's not basically saying they don't recognize it, but they're not going to necessarily express a lot of those things. They're going to kind of keep it to themselves. Even though there may be resentment there, they're still not going to express it in most cases. All right. And um, the eighth general pattern is givers are hard workers. Tell us about that. Yeah, again, uh, I've already mentioned we talked about takers wanting the attention for everything. They don't necessarily have to do all the work. Givers, on the other hand, are those that they're going to they're stick to it. Uh, work is one of those kinds of things where if they get into the situation, they kind of evaluate how well they're doing compared to others, and so they're always going to be the best at what they do. And they're willing to take on extra duties. They're willing to do whatever they have to do to prove to themselves and others that they're being a good guy, that they're doing the things. Interestingly enough, work also serves as a very useful way to avoid conflict or negative things, mm-hmm. pulling into that shell, if you will. If mm-hmm. I'm getting up working, being busy, and you break, basically say I'm trying to avoid, I mean, I can always go back if I'm a giver and say, look, I'm doing something that needs to be done here. I'm, I'm being a good guy. And so work mm-hmm. can serve a very useful purpose not only for their accomplishments and achievements, but also as a way to avoid certain kinds of problematic situations. Right, and the ninth uh, pattern that's uh, pertaining, pertaining to givers that you mentioned is that givers have trouble accepting favors. 
right. That goes back to something we talked about just a moment yeah. ago, and that is they 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 do not necessarily want to accept. They have a difficulty in doing this. And as we talk a little bit further, perhaps I'll get into a little bit of discussion in terms of if you get into a disagreement with takers and givers, kind of mm-hmm. how they're going to express those things. But say, for example, uh, if you have a, a giver who is angry with you after the conflict's over, well, mm-hmm. this is the kind of individual that will continue to do for you the things they normally do, but they won't let you do anything for, for themselves, for them. So in other words, it's kind of like, I'll still do for you, but you can't do for me. Because if you do for me, I'm going to feel almost obligated once again to have to be nicer back to you to do more for you. And so again, it's that, yeah, again, it's that same difficulty in being able to readily accept from others. Uh, and so again, if that's one of the difficulties when you're dealing with givers. And that's the reason I say that these are not the good people because they, they can create problems themselves in relationships, as you can kind of see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this and the rule number ten, or you know, I, you you mentioned them as rules, or I mentioned them as general behavior patterns. So the tenth rule or general behavior pattern of givers that you mentioned is that givers rarely seek help. They they are the kind of individuals many times when it comes to looking for things such as psychological treatment or assistance. These individuals tend to be pretty good problem solvers on their own or figuring things out in many cases. Or if they're not very good at that, they just tend to escape or avoid and just kind of fade out in terms of things. They don't usually come in trying to figure out how to fix things because if they can't do it themselves, then they almost feel as all I just need to avoid or not deal with it. And so these are individuals that if they're starting to look at psychotherapy, these kinds of things, many times they're going to be the last to come in, even though they may be some of the ones that can be helped the most. Interesting. Now that we have um, kind of uh, outlined the givers, the takers, let's talk about, you know, interactions. And um, in your chapter on intimate relationships with givers, Dr. Moss, you shared some interesting suggestions regarding arguing fairly. And can you share these suggestions, you know, perhaps with examples with our listeners? Well, in terms of if you're dealing with givers, one of the best things that you can do is to recognize that they do have rules typically that they follow. Uh, and as you start to, to to deal with them, one of the best ways is if they're doing things that are creating problems for you is to kind of fall back on a term that we'll kind of use it. It's kind of like it hurts when you do this to me. It's kind of like if you, if you can use that term hurts with a giver, then mm-hmm. it's going to have a totally different impact than if you use terms like uh, you frustrate me, you make me angry or whatever. Then you're going to get them in a defensive pattern, and basically when they argue, they're going to explain to you why they're not the bad person here. If you use things such as using the terms, well, when, you're, when, when you do this kind of thing, it really hurts, that's a showstopper for a giver because they don't have any rules to say it's okay to hurt anybody. And that's the point at which you can really open them up for more dialogue. Uh, givers, since they want to be the good guy, don't want to be the bad guy, do have the ability, if you will, that if they kind of see that their behavior is not something well, they can change the rules, and they can then follow through pretty consistently with those rules then over time. So these are the kind of people that you can sit down, discuss things with, and actually usually come up with some reasonable kinds of solutions to the problems that are going on. So, again, fair negotiation is something that they're capable of doing, unlike takers who are not capable of doing that. Because, again, givers, they don't want to feel like the bad guy, and if you make your points with them, pointing out why the behavior is that kind of thing, then most of the time you'll see them start to modify. An example would be if, 
if you have a spouse that's out playing golf all day on the weekend or whatever and you want to have them spending more time with you, then they many times in their own mind think playing golf's okay because I'm not being a bad guy, I'm being a good guy. The only way you're going to alter their behavior is to let them know that when you're gone all the time, it really hurts. I feel very much alone as a result. And so you actually have to activate some negative feelings inside of them before they can alter that behavior and then start to negotiate more reasonable kinds of patterns. Okay. Now, also in your chapter on intimate relationships with givers, you discuss the potential risk of what you term a parallel play relationship. Do share what you mean by this with our listeners, Dr. Ma. Right. Uh, in fact, this is with the second author of the book, Rex Walker, is the one who actually came up with that concept. But basically, okay. givers, uh, they, they since they basically they, they want to have control over how things are done or they want to do the whole thing themselves in many cases to feel like I've accomplished something. And so basically, if you're in a relationship with a giver, they usually want to divide out who's responsible for doing what. Uh, basically, they many times will develop their own areas of interest and their own things that they do work-wise. And then if you're in that relationship with another giver, that individual can also do the same thing, and they find themselves actually kind of growing apart. It's almost like you're doing your thing, I'm doing mine, and we all of a sudden one day we wake up and recognize we don't have something in common. And so even though there may not be any conflicts or anything when you have two givers in a relationship, you do find they can drift apart and find that uh, that they don't have things in common as the relationship progresses. So living separate lives, that whole concept of... Exactly. Of okay, okay. Now, I found another quote from your book compelling as well, and that's that, and I'd love to, again, share the quote with our listeners and then ask you to expand. And you wrote, uh, we cannot expect to have perfect relationships with imperfect people. Instead, we must learn to accept people as they are. In so doing, we must learn to accept ourselves. You know, I found that very compelling. Do please expand further, Dr. Moss. Sure. Uh, if you kind of think about all of our lives, we come up being barraged with things uh, from our childhood right up until our adult years, starting with fairy tales, things, you know, becoming happily ever after, Prince Charming or whatever it may be. Uh, and then all the, the fairy tale endings that happen, the reality is is that people, you know, many times then develop this concept of having the perfect partner, that individual who's always going to be there for me to kind of, you know, be sensitive to my needs, to be there to fill, fulfill those needs and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is is that there is no perfect individual. Uh, all human beings, as we descri- describe very clearly here, with this think-feel conflict, you're going to find that they're going to basically, if you will, develop patterns in which they can't give everything or do everything. They can't readily accept things necessarily that you want them to accept. Uh, So basically, we're talking there about the fact that you have to come to grips with the fact you will never have that perfect individual because all individuals are imperfect, and so the goal becomes being realistic then in this relationship of what my spouse or fiancé or whatever significant other is capable of doing and not capable of doing. And then more or less then, as I do that, I have to let go of some of these preconceived desires or notions that somehow that individual is going to be able to do everything for me. And that touches upon the, the next quote that I was going to share with our listeners, and, and you definitely um, touched upon it in your 
in in what you just what you just mentioned, what you just said, uh, that quote um, is that you know as you write, as I we be, as we begin to accept the imperfect people in our lives, we bid farewell to the perfect partner. The perfect partner is not a real person. Rather, he or she is a person that we create in our minds. The perfect partner is a person that we always believed would make us happy for life. And then you later write, you know, truly loving someone, someone else, means having realistic expectations about the person and abandoning the quest to make that person into the perfect partner. And, you know, I want to read that second part again, um, where you say truly loving someone else means having realistic expectations about the person and abandoning the quest to make that person into the perfect partner. Um, you know, do expand further, if you'd like, on, you know, with this oh, very definitely. insightful quote. Well, one of the things that I try to do, particularly with my patients and so forth, is to kind of redefine this term love. Uh, most people, when they think about the term love, they think about having positive feelings towards someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to redefine it more along the lines of, of if, you, if I truly love somebody, I'm accepting the reality of that individual and how they are, what they're capable of doing and not capable of doing. And so if I'm truly loving somebody using that definition, then I can start to be very realistic in terms of, as I, if I not only just deal with them, but also let go of the notion that somehow I can form them into something they're not capable of becoming. Uh, the, the concepts, I mean, again, it, it cuts across all relationships, but by far the most, uh, if, I, if I define uh, my, if I love my wife, for example, as saying I have positive feelings toward my wife, well, as soon as I become hurt and angry with her, I must have fallen out of love if I want to define it as, you know, emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is, is we're defining it in terms of the relationship. Uh, an example would be here, if I'm the number one relationship for you, you ought to be the number one relationship for me. Mm-hmm. If that is the case, then I'm going to start dealing with you, once again, as you really are. I'll, I'll accept you as this relationship, that you're my spouse, but I also have to accept that you're only capable of doing certain things, and so therefore I'm realistic as I'm starting to deal with you and my own behavior of what you can truly give to me under certain conditions uh, and let go of the things that I can't have from you. I have to grieve the loss of the things that can no longer be there. Uh, so either I either accept you as you are and grieve the loss of what can't be there or else I'm going to have to accept the fact you can't give me what I truly have to have and I have to leave the relationship. And that's difficult when people start to grapple with it at that level. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Dr. Ross, you mentioned patients, and I know you have a very active clinical practice in addition to your writing. And, you know, I want to, I want to have a really open-ended question here, and that is that based on, um, you know, based on your clinical practice and your experiences with your, with your patients, you know, what guidance, um, you know, what, what's topmost of mind in terms of the guidance that you might give our listeners with respect to, you know, navigating their relationships? Well, recognize that this pattern, uh, give or taker, as we use it. In fact, I changed it around to say type T and type G because when I start saying taker, people automatically somehow have a negative reaction to mm. that. Okay. Uh, but the, the way this whole thing developed is, is back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was working with a large number of patients, and the patterns then became more obvious uh, as we were, uh, if I, as I was dealing with the patients. And actually, this is within the context of a treatment technique called emotional restructuring in which basically we're trying to help to neutralize negative emotional memories inside of people. 
And the reason I point that out is is that within the clinical practice, we're actually not only teaching people as we're as we're talking right now, the mm-hmm. listeners are actually starting on the left side of the brain only starting to recognize these patterns. It is not changing in any way their own emotional memories and reactions that are housed in the right. Uh, if we actually in clinical practice can neutralize some of the negative memories, people not only can they think differently about the situation, but they can emotionally react differently. Uh, an example would be in the 70s and the 80s, there uh, was kind of a standing joke that you gave assertiveness training to everyone because this is a skill you could teach them. Well, many times you could teach people how to be assertive. On the left side, of the, they could understand logically how to do it, but when they got in the actual situations, they would feel like they couldn't do it. And that's the difference between the thinking and the feeling. And so in mm-hmm. essence here, this whole pattern of understanding givers and takers came out of this whole aspect of treatment, and it's just something that people can readily understand. Well, as people begin to grapple with it, you actually have to let go of some of your preconceived notions of what you thought you would like to see exist in this world and actually begin to see, okay, yeah, are these patterns actually there? And you begin to actually work with these things and look at at your spouse, but also we apply this to other relationships, including work relationships, understanding your parents, understanding your siblings. Uh, again, it's not just give or take or relationship in a marriage or a close relationship, what we're talking about this evening, but it's going to be every one of your relationships, including friendships. So it's actually a radical kind of change as you start working with this, as you can begin to actually perceive others' behaviors and understand where they're coming from. But more importantly, it also helps you to feel like, oh, they're acting this way because of them, not because mm-hmm. of me and what I'm doing here. Uh, and that's one of the most uh, liberating things can be if I can ever get outside myself and start asking the question, why is this person doing as they're doing, as mm-hmm. opposed to asking the question, what is it I'm doing that cause them to be the way they are, then you can find that you can actually navigate and deal with things much more effectively. Again, I don't know if that's making sense. It is, absolutely. Um, you know, having walked through some of the foundational concepts, I think what you're saying uh, very much makes sense and um, and is, is very interesting. Now, you know, I was wondering in terms of, you know, I don't know, in your clinical practice, have you found um, that, you know, relationships either between, I, I would imagine that the challenges are different, whether you have a relationship between a taker and a giver or two takers or two givers. I'd imagine they're all, they all have different challenges. Have oh, you noticed, yeah, but have you noticed, um, you know, would you say that one, you know, one couple, one couple in terms of whether it be a taker and a giver or two givers or two takers, have you found that the challenges are greater with one over the others, or are they just very different challenges and very different dynamics with the different groupings? How would right. you? Well, well again, there, yeah, you say there are different challenges, and some can be more <laughs> successful using certain approaches than others. Uh, obviously, uh, we've already mentioned the fact that you really can't ever expect a perfect relationship between two imperfect mm-hmm. individuals. Uh, and so that's always a given, so there is no ideal. Uh, the giver-giver type relationships, you're going to find that they have a tendency to drift apart, to develop interest in things. If you were kind mm-hmm. of falling out of love in some cases is the kind of stuff that they'll describe. Uh, right. and, and when you're talk, talking giver-taker, well, the giver in a relationship is somebody that can learn certain skills, if you will. And many times that's kind of how I approach marital therapy in the past or mm-hmm. currently, mm-hmm. is teaching people 
communication skills, negotiating skills. Well, one partner in this case can learn how to do it, but they have to understand that if they're the individual that is capable of kind of reinforcing the fact that we have to follow these rules, well, they have to assume the burden then of basically then incorporating these fair, fairer rules and being the one that basically is going to have to kind of enforce them because the taker is going to push the limits. Uh, and take or take relationships, those are the most volatile, but these are also the ones that are often the ones that people come in describing the most ecstasy as well. Uh, they have extreme highs, extreme lows, roller coaster kinds of things going on. Uh, so again, uh, obviously whether a relationship makes it or not, so much of it goes back to the fact of commitment. Uh, uh, you can have relationships that can be very problematic, but they remain together because of that idea that we're committed to making this thing work. Uh, others tolerate other kinds of things, but again, each one is quite a challenge in its own right, if you will. Um, Interesting. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Moss, for joining us today and sharing your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, again, Dr. Moss's book is For Better or for Worse, Am I in Love with a Giver or a Taker? Now, in case you joined us late or would like to share the show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Matchmaking's website, which is www.intersectionsmatch.com. And then I can be reached at jesbina at intersectionsmatch.com. Appreciate your hanging out with us tonight. Do email me with topics you'd like discussed in future shows. And make sure to join us for next month's show on Sunday, February 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, everyone. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.